The opinions expressed in the Epsilon Theory podcast represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. I'm Michael Correo, Director of External Communications at Salient, and I'm pleased to present the first Epsilon Theory podcast with our host, Ben Hunt. Ben? Hey, Michael. Thanks. Thanks very much. I am, in fact, Ben Hunt, the author of uh, Epsilon Theory. You know, I, um, uh, this, this podcast is, is long overdue, and I, I really appreciate everyone getting together to put this on. Um, you know, Epsilon Theory is started as a labor of love. I, 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 I'll tell the origin story of Epsilon Theory. I think it's kind of appropriate here on our first podcast. But I, um, you know, I started I started Epsilon Theory because, and my, my wife still gives me a hard time about this because I announced one night I've got something to say, and she <laughs> she said, "Wow, you are so full of yourself. You've got something to say, huh? All right, well, go at it." But we, we live in an amazing age, right, where uh, you can call it the, the new age of the golden age of the essay or the pamphlet, because we live in an era where anyone can say something and you can put it out there and you no longer have the gatekeepers, that the, the arbiters of taste who say, oh, it's good enough or not. You put it out there. And if you've got something to say, it'll find an audience. And the most gratifying thing in the world to me is that it... it, it, it We've gotten to a point where Epsilon Theory has found an audience, and it's it's overdue to do a podcast because it's high time to turn that into more of a conversation, less of what I've got to say, and more of let's have a conversation with other uh, truth-seeking um, people, participants in markets, because this is a conversation mostly about markets. Uh, people want to look at the world through, uh, through, through a different lens than they get from, from, from most sources. But I didn't know any of that at the time, right? I just had something I, I something to say. So I started writing and, um, you know, I had a, just, you know, a couple hundred people I was writing for. Of course, I'm really just writing for myself as, as, as we all are. And it, I was doing this for, for, for a couple of months and, I got a call from uh, this uh, asset manager down in uh, Houston called called Salient Partners. I'd known him. Salient had been an investor in my hedge fund, so I, I, I knew of them. But I got this call, this invitation to come down and talk about what I'd been writing in, in an Epsilon theory. And when I was now to jump forward and think about well, well, how do I want to start off this conversation, the the, the whole podcast effort around around epsilon theory? I, I thought about this origin story and I thought to myself, well, well, who was it that really got epsilon theory going in the first place? And the answer is my it's my it's my partner, my colleague uh, Jeremy Radcliffe. And I and I and I think of Jeremy as if anybody's familiar with the, the the Motown saga as the as the Barry Gordy, right of of, of Epsilon theory, right? Someone who and I've seen this in other episodes, instances too. Jeremy's got this amazing uh, sense of 
what fits the, uh, the, the, the zeitgeist, the tone of the, of, of the day. And uh, I really knew that when I was doing this podcast, I wanted to have Barry Gordy with me because I, I do want to, to, to see Epsilon Theory now grow, not just from me having something to say, but for it being, I'll use the music industry, a label, right, where we can have lots of people say things and have lots of conversations between like-minded people. So that's why I've got Jeremy here uh, as my partner, not just in the business, but on the podcasts. Uh, and Jeremy, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you now and let you uh, introduce yourself finally. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be here, I, I th- and I'm honored to, uh, to be identified as the, the Barry Gordy <laughs> of, of Epsilon Theory and, and play that important role in the origin story. And you're right, I, when, I, when I first uh, uh, read, uh, and I, the, the irony of it is the first uh, um, Epsilon Theory uh, piece that I read uh, was, your, um, was one that you wrote regarding uh, risk parity strategies having a tough time. I think it must have been, so it must have been in mid 2013. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was the, the first article I, I wrote that really got a wide uh, readership. And uh, it was uh, how gold lost its luster. So it was talking about the meaning of gold uh, in this, this golden age of the central banker, uh, how the all weather fund got all wet and other just so stories, right? So an homage, a bit of a bit to, to Rudyard Kipling. And it was it, it, and salient as, as a as a manager of risk parity strategies. That, that was obviously very interesting, you know, uh, a topic to me. And I think that was uh, one of the reasons I wanted to seek seek you out and, and have a conversation was to understand your point of view there. But I thought that the the genius in that article, most likely the reason that it that it struck such a chord with your with your readers was that. Uh, what turns out to be a very prescient comment on gold and why you should own gold and what yeah. role it plays in the portfolio um, as this and, and really you, you argued in that in that article if I remember correctly that uh, that gold uh, really functioned more as a hedge against the narrative of central bank omnipotence. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. That's where I introduced that concept and that, that game theoretic concept of uh, the missionary and the, the the notion of the common knowledge game. And it's, uh, it, it, you know, not to get off on the subject of gold, but hedge, I, I, that's exactly right. It's an insurance policy. It's not a store of value. That, that's what it used to mean. And it allowed me to write about, it's, it's not just what a security, how it's defined. What does it mean? Because gold means something very different today than it did, you know, when J. Pierpont Morgan was was walking the earth, right? When still his famous phrase, you know, gold is 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 money and everything else is credit. Yeah, it, it meant something different today. And what it means today is an insurance policy against central bank error. And boy, do we have a potential, or more than a potential, central bank error to talk about today. Well, and I, and I think that was one of the the uh, attractive uh, parts of reading Epsilon Theory early on was, hey, hey, wow, here's this here's this guy who is talking about the markets in a completely different way and from a completely different perspective. And I think we're used to whether we're in the industry or yeah. whether we're outside of it. Uh, and and that's that that political science and game theory perspective that you bring to the markets that. Uh, I did feel was so appropriate for the time and for what was going on in the markets. Well, you know, I've said this before, and I, and I 
actually believe it. The, you know, the, I know that the game that Epsilon Theory has struck a chord with a lot of people. Uh, and it's, I'm, I'm a messenger of that, but I'm not the message. Right? The, the, the message is that these notions of behavior, these notions of meaning, these notions of history are as important today, more important today, I'd, I'd argue, than they've ever been. And in the, the realization for me was that we're not alone. You know, it wasn't just me having something to say. There were a lot of other people who were, who were looking for the words to say the same thing out loud that they've been saying to themselves for a long time. And that's, that's where I see Epsilon Theory going, is, is giving a voice and allowing this, it's more than just a critical mass. There are, this is, this is many times the only thing that keeps me going when we have markets like the markets we're experiencing today is the knowledge that there are these hundreds of thousands of smart, intelligent truth seekers out there uh, that don't take received wisdom, but yet aren't bomb-throwing radicals. They actually function well in the world. They're actually successful people. And, and they're, again, they're looking for the words to give voice to things that they've been saying and thinking for a long time. And, and, I, and I know that in this sort of conversation that you and I are going to be having and the, what we're doing with Epsilon Theory, it's, I, I'm, I've never been more excited about, again, providing a, a forum for a community of like-minded people to think about markets in this way. One of the exciting things to me about the podcast format is, is just the opportunity to go a little deeper um, and, and also to maybe chase down some of these rabbit trails that, you know, you really can't um, uh, go down an epsilon theory without uh, just stringing those things to 50 pages. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, things that, that either would string the, the notes to 50 pages and things that are, are more in depth than 144 characters, right? right. There, there's a lot in that, that great area in between that and needs I, and, to be talked about. Yes, and, and, and I'm aware of that given all the times we've spent talking, uh, you know, whether it's on the trading floor in Houston or over the phone or on one of our, uh, on one of our trips to see some of our clients or prospects, but uh, th this is to me an opportunity to, to expand on some of those conversations and, and share them with a broader audience and, and something I'm really excited about. And I'd, and I'd just add to invite the audience to, um, whether it's through email, that's the best way. We'll find some other way to get comments into this this conversation as well, but also to invite the audience to participate as we go forward. We do plan, we do plan in the future to, to have a mailbag feature. The very near future. And even now, just just email me and we'll 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 get those those comments on the air. Ben, what's your email address? <laughs> well, it's uh B Hunt, B as in boy, H-U-N-T at salientpartners.com. And you're on Twitter? I am indeed. Uh, it's at Epsilon Theory. Jeremy? I'm on Twitter at JRadbo, J-R-A-D-B-O. I've always meant to ask you about that, the whole JRadbo thing. It's somewhat of a long story, but it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a bastardization of Rambo. Oh, there we go. My last okay. name, Radcliffe. And then the J, because believe it or not, there are other Radbos out there who, who 
we're taking him. You're right. It's a long story. Yeah. yeah. Another story. podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll dive. We'll, we'll get some of my college buddies on and have a have a podcast about uh, about the origin story of Radbo. Uh, but why don't we di- why don't we dive in? We re- we ready to go with podcast one? Let's we, do we this. Got the, we got the preliminaries out of the way. Indeed. Uh, let's start with something fun. Politics. You're Love a political it. science guy. Uh, you're not supposed to talk about politics, so naturally, that's the first thing I want to talk about. Um, uh, yeah. So, Ben, what, let me just ask you a quick question about this 2016 election. Now that we've gotten on this conversation, if I if I had to, if you had to guess, yeah, yeah, what do you think the latest polls out of New Hampshire are showing in the Democratic primary? Sanders versus Clinton on the Democrat side, uh, I, I got to think neck and neck. I mean, which is pretty stunning to me, but I got to think neck and neck. So, in New, heading into the debate uh, last uh, on Sunday evening, yeah, which was all about Sanders. I wa- did you watch that? Absolutely. I did. Yeah, yeah, it was fascinating. So, heading into that debate, uh, Bernie held a, depending on the poll, held a slim lead uh, in New Hampshire, you know, hmm. single mid single digits typically. Hmm. Um, the CNN poll conducted uh, mostly before Sunday night's debate, which is surprising to me, um, uh, found that. Uh, his support has grown significantly and now leads in Vermont 60% to 33%. Whoa, no, no. For reals? I mean, 27 point. Who did this poll? Who did this poll? So this poll is the... This is a great question, Ben. This is the CNN, CNN poll. So the Young Socialist Society of uh, New Hampshire did the poll. That's right. Communist News Network. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, no doubt. Al Jazeera, America. CNN, before they went out of CNN, and a and a New Hampshire, uh, uh, what I what I suppose the New Hampshire radio station WMUR. Uh, wow, that is crazy. Because I, I did think that debate was such a fascinating exercise in political theater. I mean, I mean, didn't you? I mean, with with Hillary coming out and the the, the whole doing the the full Obama defense. I mean, that was. That was crazy. But I thought, I thought Sanders, he got in, and I remember you were tweeting about this. I was going, truth bombs, right? Sanders was dropping truth bombs the whole way through. Well, I, what I like is that Sanders has really has been successful, I think, in um, drawing the lines around what he thinks uh, you know, Clinton's campaign is really about. And it's about the status quo. Absolutely. And Absolutely. it's about maintaining a lot of the you know, democratic power structure and... Uh, he's he's clearly going to make it that that about that debate, and it's a which is a logical thing to do given given the you know, discomfort I think you're feeling in in both sides of the electorate, not just uh, the Republican side, which clearly has its own um, you know internal battle going on, but on the Democratic side, where I think you've got a lot of the uh, progressive left feeling like Obama has been a little bit of a disappointment. And Hillary, a little bit, and Hillary is not going to be. And they're, what they're, what they, what they right, rightfully, in my opinion, feel is that Hillary won't be a whole lot better. In fact, she'd probably be a more yeah. of a centrist. Yeah. Well, well, I thought that was why it was so tone deaf of Hillary to again do the the, the full Obama right to, to do that full defense because, and and I think, you know, in our conversations and not to get all in personal politics, but look, I, I think there's no doubt that uh, in, in my mind, at least. Uh, Obama turned out to be a profoundly status quo politician. Uh, not at all what I expected, uh, certainly going into the first term. I think by the second term, we, you know, we, we, we know who he is. But in that first term, I, I thought he ended up being a profoundly 
I'll use the C word, conservative politician. Conservative in the notion of, of, of not making significant social change, you know, the posters notwithstanding. And that's why I found it so surprising because I, I tend to find Hillary, maybe I'm wrong in this, maybe I'm just ascribing some lack of tone deafness to her and she's been tone deaf all along. But I thought that was a very tone deaf performance to embrace status quo and lack of change when you've got an electorate, particularly that primary electorate, that you know is begging for change, begging for change so much that look, truth bombs are not with Sanders. They're, you know, whatever these poll results are for a, you know, say, you know, basically a raving lunatic when it comes to the, the, the economic prescription for this country. So, so, you know, one of the things that struck me as I've uh, been thinking more about on the, on this democratic side of the ticket or, or of the, or the, uh, uh, you know, the election is that, it almost feels to me a little bit like Hillary is the Mitt Romney of 2012. <laughs> That's uh, great. This year, That's great. Where she, where she's just out of touch. Yep. Uh, you know, Mitt Romney, 2012, private equity. Corporations know, are people. You, you know, Citizens United. <laughs> corporations are people too. Um, you know, the 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 51 percent. Yep. Uh, you know, you know, discussion. Hillary seems to be also kind of wrong-footed uh, in today's environment, which is even on the progressive side, uh, very much angling for change and and and, a, and exhibiting a frustration with Obama as a pre, uh, as a president. Right? You've got the right complaining that Obama is the biggest socialist um, that's that's you know been in the White House um, you know ever. Uh, but on the uh, on the progressive side of the of the, of the uh, ledger, you're hearing a lot of complaints about Obama not being progressive enough. For sure, Guantanamo still in existence, you know, drone wars and the like. And I think Hillary's caught between a little bit of a rock and a hard place. You know, this whole notion of tone deafness I find fascinating because this is one of the things you know we talk about a lot in epsilon theory is the use of communication policy, right? That's a phrase I'm not just making up. That's what the Fed calls their toolkit to try to influence expectations by what they say, by just words. That the words don't actually mean what they say, but the words are chosen for the impact that they think they'll have. And and it, and it does strike me, and I think you've seen that with people I've considered to be masters of communication policy, like Mario Draghi in the past, He's come across to me as rather tone deaf in a lot of his statements recently. Uh, you know, forget about the, the Fed governors and, and, and Yellen. There's this almost this epidemic of tone deafness, right, that seems to be going around with a lot of, I'll call them status quo politicians, because that's what central bankers are. They're politicians as much as Hillary Clinton is. And it's, uh, it's striking. I don't know why. I, I tend to think it gets back to... Uh, the changes, the tectonic plates that are now shifting in the world, whether it's coming out of China or some of the the, the other things we talk about. So uh, this, this whole question of tone deafness I'm finding fascinating in an era where using words for their effect is the go-to play of every public figure in the world. 
And so would the, op- I don't know what the opposite of tone deafness is, but it's <laughs> being in touch, I guess. Yeah, right. With the, the as I was going to say, yeah. Like uh, but it, it would seem on the other side of the coin, Donald Trump is someone who's very much in touch with the feelings in the country more broadly and certainly on the, you know, on the conservative side of the aisle. And it's amazing, right? Because it is the tone, right? It's not the words, it's actually the tone because he can say and has said, any number of words, which if you were to, to, to read them or see them in a vacuum, you think, how can anyone survive politically with that statement? And yet every statement only cements or seems to cement political support. Uh, it, it, it really is fascinating. It's not just the United States, though, you know. The elections. Well, not just the elections, but this this fragmented, polarized electorate, uh, you know, and this, and, and again, I go back to what we've seen in history during these periods of um, global debt and the politics that comes out of that, the last time being in the 1930s, because if you look at the electorate in the 1930s in the U.S., you look at the Congress that was elected, it was as polarized, more polarized than it's ever been until last year, right? The, or the most recent Congress, the, the, the 2014 Congress. So it's, it, 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 it's, a, it's a pattern that repeats itself over history, and it's a pattern that repeats itself across countries as well. Because you're looking at France today. Look, I, I mean, we, we, we know the national front, right? The, the, the far-right party. I think it's fair to say it's the most popular party on a nationwide scale. They didn't do well in the regional elections once you get past a certain round where... Having a plurality certainly nationally doesn't communicate or doesn't translate into actually winning local seats when there is a majority that is anti-national front, right? But in national elections, it's going to be a different story. And you look at the strength not on the on the far right for sure, but you've got this enormous strength on the on the far left. You see in France, you see certainly in Spain, you saw come to an electoral victory in, in Portugal and in Greece is this tremendous polarization that is is unprecedented except for the last time we had these economic conditions in the world. And that can't be an accident. And it didn't work out too well in the 1930s what came out of it. And that's why my concern is that you mentioned elections, that when you get an election where it, the, the center doesn't hold. You don't get a center. You can't get a centrist candidate elected in these circumstances. You get somebody who's either surprisingly to the right or surprisingly to the left, and because they're way on the left or way on the right, they they they've got a virulent. I'll use that word supporting base, but they don't command a majority support. They don't have that consensus support. And it leads to, again, speaking historically, to illiberal outcomes, right? Either the illiberalism of the right or the illiberalism of the left. And and when I look out there, that is what troubles me the most. Because politics always trumps economics. And the economic conditions we're in always leads to these sort of polarized electorates and societies, and what emerges from that is illiberalism. And volatility in markets? 
Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, if you want to bring it back to making money and all that good well, stuff. <laughs> we are in the asset management business. We are, after all. It's true. It's true. But look, I, I think that uh, let's let, we can talk about making money in in, in these sorts of, of not just markets, but societies, right? Polarized societies where you've got massive debt and a political imperative to to manage that debt. Uh, and when I say you think about how to 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 make money, <laughs> in a lot of respects, I think that. This is a line I like to use in, in Epsilon Theory that this golden age of the central banker, and I'll change that now to be the golden age of uh, electoral polarization, just doesn't roll off the tongue as well. But, but this golden age of the central banker, I, I don't think is a time for investment heroes, right, trying to predict an outcome, because that's what I'm saying about elections and politics. You're not going to predict the outcome, because all of our, this is our human nature about this stuff, we always predict the centrist outcome. We do. Uh, you don't you don't predict the surprise, because it is by definition a surprise. Uh, but it's a time not for investment heroes, we're trying to predict what's going to happen, but just a time for investment survivors. And 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 I think that sort of view it doesn't come naturally to investors, right? It doesn't come naturally to me. I want to be right. I want to predict what's going on, and and, and I have to. I think it's incumbent on all of us to have the sort of humility to understand you're not going to be able to predict what's going to happen. You're just not. So you, you've got to think about your investments and your portfolio from, uh, again, I'll, I'll call it a, this, this notion of profound agnosticism, which goes against the grain of everything we read. It goes against the grain of our whole industry, right? The whole, the whole financial services industry is based on the notion of predicting and telling people why something happened and that you know why something happened and what's going to happen next. That's what our whole business is based on. Because if, if you've got a client and they want to know what's going on and you tell them the honest answer, which is, I don't know and I can't know and I'm not going to be able to predict what's going to happen next, they're going to find another financial advisor. That's what's going to happen. So we, we, we've got an industry that's that's grown up around this notion of giving answers when we don't know the answers, we can't have confidence in our answer because our toolkit for predicting answers doesn't work when you've got a, an economy and a society, a political society that is polarized, that, is, that, that, that doesn't, where the center doesn't hold. But I, think you'd, I think you'd be the first to say that um, while predicting the outcomes of these, in these polarized environments is challenging, uh, history has got to be a guide for us. Yeah, yeah. It's not chaotic, right? I, I mean, there are patterns that, that emerge and repeat themselves, right? That's the old line that, you know, like every other good line, it's, it's ascribed to Mark Twain, right? That, that, that history doesn't repeat itself, uh, but it sure does rhyme a lot. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's very true. And, and that's why, you know, the whole notion of the, what I kind of a self, you know, absorbedly call the Epsilon Theory Project started with the notion of looking at history and game theory because game theory is I'll call it scientific because it is science it, it is it, it, it uses the language of science mathematics it doesn't have to use that language but it's a rigorous attempt to try to look at the patterns of human behavior 
that work across time and across human cultures and geographies. So yeah, I think we can look at the patterns here and that's what I try to write about. You know, Mark Twain's autobiography began to be released in 2013 on the 100th anniversary of his death. Oh, I remember seeing something. Have you read any of it? I just got all three <laughs> volumes. It's about 2000, they're about 2000 pages. Um, we'll ask me in two years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Why, why was it? What, what was it? He, he like said, he don't, "Don't publish it for a hundred years or something." He insisted in his will that his autobiography not be published for a hundred years, so that anybody mentioned and, and anybody, you know, one generation attached. Yeah, it was gone. gone. It would be long gone. Um, which well, makes wait. it exciting. Because yeah, because he must say some nasty things right. about people. So uh, people, unfortunately, we probably we don't know them. Right? They're all dead. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. We'll circle back to the Mark Twain topic, but. Speaking of elections and, and, and this you know polarized uh, nature of, of the of the electorate uh, in Europe and the U.S., um, you know I think some of that uh, discussion around the impacts there is also tied into this conversation about what's happening in the investment world today and what's particularly happening in this uh, global currency war that we seem to be um, you know seem to have found ourselves in the middle of. Uh, it feels that way, doesn't it? Right. I, I mean, I, we say, you know, kind of what's happening, you know, what's happening is that nothing is working. Right? And, 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 it, and again, I, I go back to this, this whole notion of the, the 1930s and, and what emerged from there. And we're all familiar with, uh, you know, Smoot-Hawley and, you know, tariffs and quotas. And that was the, the, the way that uh, domestic politics intersected with, global trade back then and today it's not tariffs and quotas but it's it, it's currency policy it's monetary policy you know we, we talk about monetary policy has been as a, a matter of setting interest rates and that is in fact the big toolkit that our federal reserve has right for monetary policy but monetary policy is not just setting interest rates monetary policy is actually well what is your policy about money and you see that most clearly in countries like China, where their equivalent of the Fed, the People's Bank of China, is not just dealing with interest rates. That's actually, I don't want to call it a minor toolkit of theirs, but it's a secondary toolkit of theirs. Their big toolkit is, well, what do we do with money, the value of our currency? So when we talk about monetary policy, and again, this notion of the, the, the golden age of the central banker, Right? It's not just the notion of interest rates. It's absolutely the notion of currencies. And, and, and we've got to understand that, that we've they've entered this new era of, I'll say it's a new era. The, again, this is the pattern of the 1930s, right? Where it's every country for itself, where it's not cooperation between countries on their monetary policy, but it's using their monetary policy to say what's good for our country. And this is coming to us as a shock to markets, and it's hurting global markets. But this is what's normal when you have the, the, the global debt overhang and again, the politics of dealing with it. And again, the notion that central bankers are politicians. What was abnormal was the five years we had of cooperation between monetary policy politicians, right? The central bankers. I, why, why was there cooperation? I think in large part because the... The whole notion of being a central banker, everyone comes out of academia, so they share this sort of background and shared worldview of things. 
But over time, and we've seen this here, we've kind of returned to what's normal. And and, and here, it, I, you know, my view is it, it really started when Bernanke, you know, called the taper tantrum, said we're going to start uh, tapering off our QE at the same time that the rest of the world said, well, we're going to ramp ours up. And then it really clicked in the summer of 14 when Yellen said, all right, we're actually now having a tightening bias. We're, we're, we've gone past just not adding, just, just, and we've gone past tapering off our QE purchases. We're actually going to start tightening short rates now. And again, the rest of the world said, well, we're going to double down because that's, that's what we need to do domestically. And it is no accident that's when, that is the moment when the price of crude starts to crater. It's no accident that's exactly when the price of every commodity on earth craters, starts to, to just plummet. Summer of 2014, when the central banks of the world went back to the normal pattern, which is we're in competition, we're not in cooperation. Don't you think the cooperation of the previous years was born out of a sense of collective fear for survival? Well, that's that. There is no doubt because that. Uh, like, I remember this moment well. So it was in. Uh, uh, it was right after Lehman went under, and you know, I was running this long short fund, and we were we were killing it because we were just short everything, and we were short the right stuff. And I, I remember seeing my office, and the the market was down some, you know, egregious amount. And I remember, you know, very very pleased with myself, and you know, you said by. By, by October, in the hedging, you're already kind of kind of counting your bonus, you know, and then I was thinking, oh, okay, this is, this is great, this is great. And then it hit me, and it really was like a wave, which was like, well, you know what? What if there's no one around to pay off on these investments and the like that we have, right? It, it wasn't that, oh, you know, we had some Lehman as our counterparty, so, so we're not going to get paid from them. That wasn't it. It was, what if the whole system goes down? And I remember that moment, it just washed over me, where you're thinking, oh, that could really happen right now. And you, can really, you could feel it in the air. Um, and you're right, it was, it was, and this is kind of my reaction to the whole aftermath of then, this first with the Temporary Liquidity Guarantee Program, which I think was the most effective policy decision. I think that saved the world. Right. It wasn't TARP. It wasn't even QE1. It was when the U.S. Treasury came out and said, we are going to put the full faith and credit of the United States government behind the unsecured senior debt of banks. And that's why Goldman Sachs became a bank. And that's why Morgan Stanley became a bank, because the full faith and credit of the United States went behind Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and other bank at that moment. And that did it. saved the world. It also reviewed the, it revealed the naked sinews of power, you know, in our society. But it did. It saved the world. And in that fear of that existential risk, yeah, that motivated yeah, well, everything. A lot, of important, a lot of important institutional investors, pension plans, and, and others, um, you know, held quite a bit of bank debt. Yeah, we went out and bought bank debt as soon as we could. As soon as that, that happened, you could buy, you know, Morgan Stanley senior paper at, you know, call it 75 cents. And then this is this right after TLGP came out, and within a few weeks, it's trading at you know ninety five. Uh, so it was, it was that was the long opportunity. That that was the thing I think that really saved the whole financial system. So let's refocus or skip ahead to today. What's going on in China? 
You've written about this in Epsilon Theory, but uh, and and I we know China is is um, renowned for the opacity of uh, you know their economy and the data. Um, what do you think real, is really going on over there right now? China's got two things going on, and they're, they're both political, uh, as these things always are. Uh, the first is that it is an existential issue. It's not just a nice thing to have. It's an existential issue for that country to have real growth. And I don't mean financial asset inflation. I mean real people working at real jobs, at real factories, making real stuff. And it's an existential issue because the, the, the legitimacy of the party the legitimacy of this, you know, this is a, the, the 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 whole notion of, of legitimacy in China, at least since you know the, the revolution in forty nine, has been it's the party, it's the army, and the people, right? These 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 three things together with the the party leading the way, and the the, the genius of Deng Xiaoping was to channel that leadership of the party away from what Mao called permanent revolution, but into something uh, actually more permanent and more lasting, which is growth. Right? The whole notion of this, you know, glorious to be rich, right? It, which, is, which, is, which trivializes what, what, what Deng Xiaoping was saying. Right? What he was saying is we don't have to be permanent revolutionaries. Let's actually build something. Let's build this economy. Uh, and that's how we're going to build our society, and that's going to be the legitimacy of the party. That's going to be the glue that holds us all together. And that was really successful, right? To, to, to liberalize, the, to allow markets to take place, even though the politics were not liberal or market-oriented at all. So that's why I say it's existential, because if you lose that growth, if you lose that ability, again, to trivialize it, to become rich, then what's the party for? Right. What's 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 their forward-looking mission? They're the glue for holding that that uh, triumvirate together. So what you're seeing in China today, and, and and I know I'm getting maybe too deep, right? Because what we want to really want to talk about, well, how does it affect us? But I think it's important to talk about what's happening. You know, what what is the 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 danger? What's the the concern? And the concern, as it always is, is political. So there's an existential political issue in China to maintain growth. They want to get to where the U.S. is, right? Where you've got a domestic market that, that creates the self-sustaining growth opportunity, where you're selling to yourselves, essentially, as, a selling, as opposed to selling to the world. And so the question is, how do we get from here to there? And they're trying to do it. I think they'll be successful, just as the United States was successful in doing it. But they're running into a very similar issue that the United States did. Going, let's go all the way back to, you know, Civil War days, right? When the United States was this young country, this young economy, but it was growing, it was becoming the world's biggest economy. It was still a ways off. How were they able to maintain growth and keep going? They did it by debt and credit and building stuff, 
right? And so that's what China's done. They've done the same thing. And just as you saw in the United States, there's this enormous debt binge, particularly around the railroads going into 1870. You've got the same thing going on in China. They've, 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 they've taken that same chapter from the historical playbook, right? We're going to build this country. We're going to make stuff and it's going to be infrastructure and that's how we're going to do it. And it all makes a lot of sense and it's all really good. But you're going to have moments like we had in the 1870s, like they're experiencing now, where you've got too much debt. And you're in a world that's not buying the stuff you're making. Or you've gotten a little ahead of yourself with infrastructure build out and construction. Right. That's the way it always works. You always get ahead of yourself. So I was, I was looking at the data the other day. So the you know the, the Chinese has had this massive credit expansion domestically. So it's you know well over two hundred percent of their GDP is the just domestic credit, and most of that or a significant portion of that since two thousand and eight. So they made this very conscious effort: is that you know how are we going to address the slowdown? We're going to print money. So they've printed enormous amounts of domestic currency and we're going to expand credit domestically. Great. Makes total sense. But what always happens in those circumstances is that your currency now becomes overvalued. This is what happened in Thailand and Southeast Asia in 97. This is what happened in Mexico before that. It, it, it's, it's, it's not a law of nature. At least it's the law of supply and demand when it comes to currencies and credit. So now you've got a situation where their currency is overvalued they're not selling enough stuff abroad to keep that economy growing the way it needs to because they're not there yet in terms of a domestic consumption-led economy. So they've got to devalue their currency. They've got to. And, and it's out of control. They, so, they don't control it anymore. That's the problem. Well, but for the, Let me back up for a second. Yeah. For the, for the average American that's out there, you know, paying attention to the news, maybe it's not the average American, but the average American that's actually, you know, a little bit active in, in uh, following the news cycle and whatnot. Uh, most people uh, here in the U.S. have been used to this concept that the Chinese have been artificially holding down the value of their currency, right? That's what we hear Chuck Schumer railing about. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, uh, on a seemingly Schumer quarterly and basis. Trump today. Yeah. So what, what, how, how, can we, how can we possibly have this view that the Chinese uh, uh, currency is overvalued when all we've been hearing about is that they've been keeping it undervalued to, to unfairly compete with, uh, with the U.S. and other markets? Yeah. The, 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 the reason why we think that is that, is that Schumer and Trump today are just wrong. Right? They're, they're just wrong. Um, yeah, that's just no other way to say it. They're just wrong. Politi right? And, right. and politically expedient. Well, yeah, and this this is what you're seeing now in, um, again, it gets back to the a conversation. I'll say that again. It, it's the conversation about political polarization and what is the, the, the communication. You know, are you in touch with the, are you tone deaf or are you in touch with the tone of what's going on? And the tone of what's going on in every country in the world is it's somebody else's fault. It's another country. We've got to be tougher. We've got to be stronger. They're taking advantage of us. And, you know, that's not just an American phenomenon. You go to China, they're having those same conversations domestically, right? You go to any country in the world, they're having those conversations. Is that what works? 
politically. It always does, but especially works when you're having, again, this global debt overhang and the politics of how you manage it. And the politics of how we've managed it is to create this deflationary equilibrium. I know that's a big mouthful of a phrase, but it just basically means we're in this long gray slog. And that's been the political decision of how to maintain the status quo, that we're going, we're not going to be in this terrible situation where everything collapses, but we're not going to be recapturing actual fear and greed and real growth again. It's a long gray slog. That's what deflationary equilibrium is. And that's where we are. And, and that's where every country in the world is trying to avoid it. But when every country in the world takes actions to try to pull itself out of it, it requires other countries to respond even more in kind. That's when you, you call it a currency war earlier, right? Let's not call it a currency war. Let's call it a strategic interaction between self-interested countries working on the terms of trade that benefit themselves. All right, we'll, we'll shorten that. It'll be a currency war. So as China is trying to devalue its currency, yeah, that's terrible for American companies. It's having a strong dollar is not a good thing for U.S. corporations and their profits, which I'm still enough of a fundamentalist to believe is what ultimately drives the stock market in the U.S., I know that seems strange to hear from me that I actually believe in fundamentals and profits and all like that, but I actually do. And, and a strong dollar is not a good thing if you're a, a if, unless you're Walmart, right? It's a pretty good thing for Walmart because now you're just buying all your stuff cheaper. And that's why you, you, you look at some days when, when there are real problems in China and the yuan's going down, devaluing, everything will be red except Walmart. Yeah, that'll be green. And that's, and that's why. But it's, it's, again, it gets back to this notion that, that, that we're, we're kind of, I'll say return, we're, we're back into the natural state of affairs, which is every country for itself, and you're in this environment, and you can call it a war, you can call it a strategic interaction, you can call it game theory, but that's what we're in. It's a little bit mind-blowing to think of Sam Walton's company as a proxy for China. <laughs> it is, but, but it is. But it is a proxy for two things. It's a proxy for China, it's a proxy for the U.S. consumer. And yeah, as <laughs> I was about to say, as much as I hate to admit it, uh, you know, the U.S. consumer seems to be doing pretty darn well. Uh, the, you know, we spend a lot of time in Houston, so maybe we spend too much time in Houston. And that colors our view because my view is that we are already in a recession. You know, you can use whatever descriptive word you want to use for it, a garden variety recession, an inventory-led recession, a mild recession, a earnings recession, but it's a recession nonetheless, and it's centered in energy and manufacturing and transports. And we have a recession in that aspect of our economy because of what's happening in China. So we've got this really interesting nexus, right, between what's going on in China, yeah, Fed policy, yeah, we haven't even touched on that, and, but absolutely. And, and the energy markets and oil prices. Yeah. And here's what I'll, uh, a question I want to ask you. Do you think the Fed underestimated the impact of oil price decline on the U.S. economy when they hiked rates 
which have to be uh, pro dollar and, and and negative on commodity prices. They they underestimate what was going on, or they misjudge what was going on in two respects. The first is that they like most economists and most people said, oh, low, low oil prices, that's a good thing. Tax cut for the American consumer, cheaper to fill up, you know, energy costs decline for American manufacturers, like, good thing. What they missed, and this is one of the first lessons I learned uh, when I was, you know, first getting into this business uh, in investment with a hedge fund, a boss at the, at, at the firm was saying, you know, what you have to understand is that High oil prices are an unadulterated good thing for financial assets and markets, period, full stop. That, yes, yeah, oil prices go, if they get up too high, right, you get demand destruction in the real economy. Not a good thing. But high oil prices, yeah, it costs more for the consumer. It's like a tax. But for markets and investing, it's a totally good thing. Why? Because you were getting such liquidity injected into these markets. That money that everyone's getting for the oil prices has got to go somewhere. It goes into financial assets. You know this. You've been in Houston all your life. Well, this, this is that's honestly kind of what blew me away about the Fed's decision to raise rates, which I know was a political, politically, you know, charged, charged, and 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 uh, decision. Uh, but uh, I, I, I am aware of this liquidity provision effect of having oil prices at and commodity commodity prices. Right, general, it's not just oil. Right, right. It's not about just oil, but commodity prices in general being at at reasonable levels means there's more there are more dollars and more and, exactly and, and more uh, uh, yuan and and more rubles floating around in general. Yes. Which, uh, as you mentioned, is good for financial assets. And so this idea that the Fed was going to hike rates. Um, with all the things we were, with all the the issues we were seeing uh, in global markets, um, but particularly in the commodity markets, uh, which have been, as you mentioned, for since mid mid fourteen, right? It's not a little earlier. You know, we've seen most global commodities selling off big time, uh, and it just it felt tone deaf to get back to your, to your <laughs> right to right. your uh, conversation earlier or mentioned earlier about that phrase. It felt really tone deaf of the Fed to hike rates in this environment, uh, which you knew had to be a negative for oil prices, uh, and, and if, in, in, in effect, had to be doubling or tripling down on the liquidity uh, drain uh, drain on the system. Well, and, and, and I think that's right, and, and they misjudged the impact of oil prices in another respect as well. I, I, I do think, and you, you saw this in some of the comments of, of Bullard, you know, call it a week ago, where I think they really did expect that the deflationary pressure, the headline deflationary pressure, you know, we measure infl- the core inflation and that leaves out energy, right? But still, you know that, a, a, that when you're talking about a decline in inflation and decline in inflation expectations, which is even more important than what the inflation rate is today, the expectation rate, the, the expectation was, well, oil prices are going to bottom out and so we won't have that year-over-year pressure uh, on the on inflation expectations driving them down, and that was just silly because there's there's no there's no law, <laughs> certainly not supply and demand that says the price of oil has to be anything. Right? We are in a world that's being again we've been talking about it's driven by monetary policy. It is this golden age of the central banker. And so what do you expect 
right? If you're going to tighten in a world that is dealing with growth declines where global trade is already flat on its back, you know, the Baltic dry index is at all-time lows, all-time lows. And you're going to raise rates into that? Are you, are you kidding me? What is the Baltic dry index for our listeners? Uh, sorry, it's 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 an index that, that looks at the called the the activity of shipping of dry goods. So, so we're not talking that's why the dry index, right? We're not talking about crude shipments and the like, but it's a proxy for global trade. That's 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 how you should look at it as a proxy for global trade. And it's an all-time low. It's in the I, I, I honestly I because I, I, I don't think I know that these that the I know a fair number of people who work at the Fed, right? And they are, I'd say this, without exception, at least without exception to my knowledge, they are smart, very well-intentioned people. Um, but a lot of them are true believers in the models. Uh, and, and I mean true believers in, in, frankly, in a religious sense. Right, I mean that was my background too. I was an academic. I know what it means to be part of the church of academia and believing in the models, and and the models are broken. They're not working. And and you've got you've got two groups in the Fed. One group says, "All right, the models aren't working. That means we have to do more of whatever the models are saying we should do." Right? There's something blocking the model's effective action. So we need to do more of it. Right? That's that's what I'm gonna call it the you know Paul Krugman, you know, Krugman way. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then you've got the other group which is saying, yeah, our models aren't working, so let's not do that. Let's not do more of that. Let's think of something else to do. It's a fight, and I, and I don't know how it comes out. And, and, and I think that the Fed raising rates was essentially a capitulation. They're saying essentially throwing up their hands, saying, "We know we own the market," and they're still saying, "You know, you, you you break it, you own it." And I think they broke the market, right? Because now the markets are driven by monetary policy and whatever the Fed does, and not by the fundamentals. So you break it, you own it, and the Fed said, "We don't want to own it. We don't want to own it anymore. We're going to go back to." old days of, okay, we're going to raise short rates because that's what we, that's what we do. We need that ammunition. And we're going to focus on the employment rate. That's going to be the metric we're going to look at. We're going to go back on what we said earlier, where it's inflation and inflation expectations that we take into account. They jettisoned that like a hot potato and said, okay, we're just going to look at the employment rate. And that gives us the confidence we need to raise rates Ignore everything else we've been talking about, and I think it was just they're they're just they, they're trying to to wash their hands of owning this market. Well, you either mentioned this in conversation or in one of your pieces recently about the Fed. Just frankly, it felt like to you they were getting just getting tired. Yeah, they were tired uh, yeah. of this of this tough position of of you know being accused of artificially propping up markets. Uh, and, and well, well, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just the thing that the accusation. I, I don't think that's that's what they got tired of. Uh, what 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 became, I think, an impossible situation for anyone who's a Fed governor and almost all of them are former academics. And I can speak as being a former academic. This is a horrible position you want to be in. You didn't join the Fed to show up every Friday and make a public announcement about whatever you know, you believe meaningless data point just came up on CNBC. 
But when they talk about being data dependent and we're measuring all this stuff, that was the posi- that's the position they put themselves in. And that's what they were tired of. No, endless job owning is, is, uh, is, is it's exhausting. <laughs> Trust me, it's exhausting. So, what color does the Fed see the economy now? Is it green, flashing yellow, red? Like I say, I think we're already in a recession, and it's it's a it's a willful blindness of the Fed to everything other than the employment number, and we can talk to our blue in the face about you know what that employment number means or doesn't mean. I'll tell you, I have a hard time getting all excited about service jobs, as that. My view, and people can argue with me, that tend to be lower wage, and we're certainly not seeing any wage increases that tend to be easily fired, right? And that I don't see how they are an engine for making stuff. And I'm sorry, but when we talk about gross domestic product and what drives an economy, it's still making stuff. And that's what China knows, and that's what they're addressing with devaluing their currency, because they're going to keep on making stuff. And we've gotten away from that. We haven't just gotten away from that in the sense of actually doing it. We've gotten away from it in the sense of, I'll say, valuing it and considering it as a crucial part of the economy. And again, maybe I just spend too much time in Houston. But it's the the, the notion that the energy and the manufacturing sectors and the transport sectors of our economy are somehow sequestered or somehow another animal than the U.S. economy, I think is just madness. And when you've got those sectors of the economy that aren't just hurting, but are, you know, lying on the floor comatose, if the Fed is not looking at that and cutting rates because of that, then again, my view is they've abdicated this role. And and again, I think they've abdicated the role intentionally because they don't want to own the market. They don't want to be in that position. They want to go back in the much more comfortable position that any academic would like to have, which is I'm going to sit over here in the corner and I don't have to appear on CNBC every week and I'm going to think my great thoughts and you know write my papers and give my speeches, but I'm not an active politician because that's what they made themselves. But you can't just, um, they say, if you, if, you, if you break it, you own it. You can't just give it back and say, oh, okay, sorry about that. They can't put the genie back in the bottle. You really can't. Is it too early to say that uh, or to conclude something that I think you and I both uh, are on record as, as, as predicting on this uh, most recent rate hike, uh, that this was a policy error? Is it too soon? <laughs> I mean, you've seen inflation expectations, to your point, coll- utterly collapse. Uh, bond yields come crashing in. Equity markets with increased volatility. Um, well, let me put it this, this way too, Jeremy. Let me, let me ask you this. What would a policy what would a policy mistake look like if not this? <laughs> right? I, I mean I, I'm at a, I'm at a loss to know what a policy mistake would look like if not this. Well not, you, you talk a lot about night this having echoes or or, or whiff of yeah, not only two thousand eight but also nineteen thirty seven. Yeah, and, and look, this is something that, that that Ray Dalio and Bridgewater wrote a lot about and you know wrote really well about which was the the notion in 1937, the Fed, and it wasn't just the Fed as I understand it, it was also uh, fiscal measures uh, that were tightening in their their own way. 
right? So both fiscal and monetary policy tightened too soon and you know, led to another wave down. And boy, it sure feels like we're rhyming with that a lot today. And you can always point to the other guy and saying, oh, well, you know, who could have known that you know, China would do this or this would come out of Europe or what have you. But yes, yeah, Rosanna, Rosanna Dana, right? It's always something. He was a good Saturday Night Live uh, well, reference. Let's get one more. Ago. Let's get one more analogy. And oh, good. You know, I love we, that. Before we shut down uh, this uh, initial podcast, and that is, it, it, we've talked a lot about China. I yeah. think it's I think there's. Uh, it's critical to understand what's going on. Um, you made a reference uh, in conversation with Michael and with me earlier in the week about. Um, the difficulties of really divining what's actually happening in China and having to kind of pay attention to uh, what, what you call the geysers that occasionally <laughs> right, right. to give you yeah. information about what's going, what's bubbling up. What's bubbling the beneath the surface, yeah. And uh, is, it, it, can you give a little more color on that analogy and what you mean by that? Yeah, here, here's what I mean by that. In, in exactly the same way that we've got tone deafness and pol- political polarization in the United States and within, within and between every country in Europe, You've got the same thing in China. You've got the same thing in China. The difference is we don't have transparency. We don't have a media that gives us a window into that polarization. So all we experience are the eruptions, these are, you know, a geyser, right? Of a, uh, it comes in the form of a, of a show trial, you know, a, a, a corruption trial of, you know, Boji Lai or somebody like that. And that's my favorite character in all this, Boji Lai. I, I've told this story before, but it's, it's, it's probably worth telling again, right? Because it's, it it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting story. So, is a guy, uh, top of the world. He was the, the, the mayor of Chongqing. So, 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 Chongqing is both a region. But it's also a big city. It's a city about the same size, metropolitan area as New York City. Right? So think of, you know, Boji Lai is like uh, Michael Bloomberg. The only difference is he's richer than Michael Bloomberg. So if you can imagine that, right? So he, uh, uh, and he made this, this fortune, it's estimated, about $20 billion, you know, give or take a few hundred million. Um, and he did it by, quote unquote, cracking down on organized crime. So, so basically he just took over the rackets. So, so any sort of economic activity in Chongqing, you had to kick up to, 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 to Bo and his machine. So Bo ended up going on trial, he and his wife, uh, for murder. They were accused and convicted of uh, conspiring to kill a British banker who basically smuggled about $100 million out of the country. And, and I will tell you that that was not his real crime. Because no one in Beijing could care less about either $100 million out of the country or the assassination of a British banker. Right, right. What they cared about was what Bo was doing with his other $19,900,000,000. He was using that to create his own political faction and his own power base within the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. It's amazing what he did. So he created a, I'd call it a secret police, except it wasn't secret. It was the police force of Chongqing. And again, this is a region. It's not just a city. It's actually a you know, geography here. A police force that had more men, better weapons, uh, more equipment of all sorts than the army 
than the PLA in that region. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a pretty fascinating story. He had his own intelligence agency that he that he built and financed. He spent millions, basically, you know, buying off, you know, the cadre of you know this cadre you know, bureaucrat and this function, you know, way off there, way off here. He was creating his own faction. That was his crime. That was his crime. And there's lots of that going on in China today. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm seeing more squirrely stuff coming out of Chinese media. We get trial balloons of this or that, uh, you know, criticizing this cadre or that cadre. It's 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 all goes back to like Gang of Four days, where where all these media trial balloons would come up, and you you never knew who was. You know, who was fighting whom, who was allied with whom, and what all the jostling was, again, beneath the surface. And so this is this is what gives me the most pause about a fairly bullish view on China. I mean, with all that's going on in China, how can you be bullish? Because, look, I, I think they can actually devalue the currency and manage growth. Again, I, I use that example of the United States in the, you know, the late 19th century, you know, <laughs> intentionally. I mean, it feels to me that, that that China and that economy is its position in the world is very similar to the U.S. economy's position in the world in the late 19th century. Um, but the the big caveat to that is that a one party state has a really hard time managing these pressures and political pressures that are released much more easily in a democracy. Multi-party system. In a multi-party system, exactly right. Throw the bums out. Throw the bums out, which we, we can do. I mean, usually they're not really bums, but it's just, you know, we're just replacing one set of bums with another set of bums. But it gives us all the, again, we, we, we're talking about the debate. It's, the, it's that political theater that, that is a really important mechanism for I'll call it releasing the steam right that 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 that, that builds up particularly when things aren't going well and a one party state doesn't have that and when you start questioning particularly the narrative of competence that's that's what a one party state relies on that we're smart we're competent we're delivering the goods and when you stop delivering the goods then you get these political fissures coming up to the surface and then all bets are off. And that's, I think, one of the great lessons that I've uh, gained from reading Epsilon Theory over the last few years is this, uh, the importance of understanding these, these political situations that can ultimately drive markets. And it, 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 you've stated this to me before, uh, that it's these political um, uh, dependency that, that the markets, uh, economic markets, take tying this back to trying to make money. And, yeah, and, yeah, let's make some money. And invest. Uh, they, the markets struggle to accurately price some of these uh, political outcomes or, or disputes. Struggle, they fail. They always fail, particularly in an environment where the political outcomes are going to be not centrist, but are going to be surprisingly to the left or to the right. Binary. Essentially, absolutely, absolutely. So it's a period of time where I don't know that it's a matter of being cautious, but again, it's a matter of being agnostic and being and realizing that you're not able to predict. 
and that, 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 that don't say you know why or that you're going, this XYZ is going to happen and so that's going to happen in the market um, when that's a really tough game to play. Let's talk about a, a negative outcome in China. What does that look like? Uh, you talk about tectonic plates shifting. Um, you know, we've talked in, uh, about uh, the credit freeze coming out of China potentially. Yeah, the credit freeze are here, and it's, it's not you know in China. It's it's really you know Southeast Asia. It's the it's the banks, particularly in Southeast Asia, outside of China, that are now freaked out about what China is going to have to do with their currency and what they're going to have to do. And this is just like. I'll use another example. Uh, so George Soros and you know Stanley Druckenmiller famously made a billion dollars when they shorted the pound and fought the Bank of England. It was the early 90s when England was trying to, the UK was trying to get into what's called the exchange rate mechanism. Anyway, long story. But the Bank of England kept defending the value of the pound, propping it up. And Soros and Druckenmiller said, all right, you can say all you want. You can spend the money you want. Ultimately, you're going to run out of money, you, the Bank of England, because the math just doesn't work. And we are absolutely in that same situation now with China. Uh, they don't have sufficient reserves. I know it's a lot of money, but that's not as strong of a balance sheet. We're talking about foreign reserves four, here. Four trillion dollars sounds like sounds like a lot. Well, it was four trillion, and now it's three point three going to three point one, and if you look at what remains, not all of it is liquid. Uh, you know, there, there, there are a lot of, again, I'll use my word, squirreliness to, the, to, to, to those numbers. But I don't care if it's $5 trillion of real hard liquid cash. If you're spending $200 billion a month propping up your currency and you've got lots of things you need that cash for, like recapitalizing your banks, like spending on a big infrastructure project outside of the country. The market can see, everyone can see where this is going. Everyone can see where this is going. And that includes the monetary policy politicians in China who are today, I really believe, making a decision, how do we devalue the currency? And you say, what's the next shoe to drop? What's the shock? The shock is when they do that. Then they either do it by floating the currency or they're doing it by announcing a devaluation. You know, there are pros and cons to both approach, but but that's not predicting. That's that's the math, right? And that, that's what I mean. I, I don't I don't want to predict what political outcomes are going to be, but I can tell you what the math is. And I can tell you when somebody's giving you a line, and right now you're being fed a line if you think that the Chinese government can manage a slow, gradual devaluation of their currency. In your view, the math is sufficiently um, uh, clear that it's going to act like gravity in this situation. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you run out of money and you stop throwing good money after bad. Now, look, they're, they're, they're trying to buy some time. They, they want to lessen the shock. Not lessen the shock in the rest of the world. Remember, every country is doing what, what, what works for them. So they know that if they devalue the currency you know, let it float, and the currency goes down by 20%. That's what I actually think they'll do. They'll let it float. And why do I think that? Because they'll be able to wrap that in a story of progress and reform. You know, they'll make the announcement, they'll, you know, Lagarde will fly in, the IMF, and, you know, they'll appear on the podium together and say, oh, we're, 
We're engaged in this. We're thrilled, thrilled. Couldn't be happier. We're we're engaged in this bold reform of progress. Proud to bring China into the 21st century. Blah blah blah. Exactly. (laughs) That, but that'll be the story, and that's that's what you need. You need that story. And the yuan goes down by 20, 25 percent, and that is a hell of a shock domestically. Now, look, do I think they can handle it? Yeah, they can. I really think they can. They'll do what Japan did in the 90s, which is basically, they'll say, uh, yeah, we got a lot of bad loans domestically. So what? Now, it turns your banks into zombies. But unlike Japan, China has a lot of tools to grow their way out of it. Right? That's what you always say you're going to do when you turn your banks into a zombie. We'll grow our way out of it. Well, China actually can. China actually can. And I think that's what they'll do. Well, it sounds like you're. Sounds like you're, you might turn bullish China uh, post devalue. Oh, to, a- absolutely. With the caveat that what we won't see are the political ruptures beneath the surface. So I, I've got a. I've got an ambivalent view on China, right? The, the the competitiveness and the growth spur that will give their economy to devalue the currency by twenty percent. Are you kidding me? You know, you'll have a lot of jobs. You'll have a lot of real people making real things in real factories in China, again, uh, which is what they have to have. Again, that's the existential issue for the the, the party and its legitimacy uh, in the country. And that's what you have to have to, you know, keep the army legitimate, too. Because, again, it's, it's, this, it's this triumvirate. It's the people, it's the party, and the army. And you, you can't separate the three. Why but, but that's a problem for the world. I, I'm very unambivalent on its impact on the rest of the that's world, including the United why, States. Why is that so bad for the for the rest of the world? I get why that's bad for the for Southeast Asia, other Southeast Asian economies that might have been have taken up the mantle of the low cost producer, you know, over the last few years. Yeah. All of a sudden, the deval in China, and that may not be the same situation. Um, you talked a lot about how that would export deflation to the rest of the world. Yeah. What does that mean? Talking about. So, so here's, here's what happens when China does this. Well, actually, three things happen. Thing number one, right? Every other country in the world has to now think about devaluing its currency because they've got to be competitive as well. This is, you started talking about a currency war. This is how it plays out. This is what that means, right? What it means is not fighting. It's not, the, it's not as it played out in the, 30, in the 30s, which was the imposition of tariffs and quotas to restrict trade. You're, it's a, I'll use the, the, the economics term, beggar thy neighbor policies, right? Where, okay, you devalued by 20%, I guess we will too, so we can be competitive with what we sell abroad. It's that wave of devaluations that is very damaging for each of those domestic economies. Why? Because, yeah, you're making stuff cheaper to sell abroad, but you also made stuff a lot more expensive to, to bring into the, to, to the country. So your, your standard of living goes down, and that creates political problems when your standard of living goes down. So that, this is why countries print more money and, and you know, expand credit like China did because they're trying to build that consumer-led, consumption-led economy. And that sets this back when they devalue, and it sets other countries back even more. And when you set these countries back, that means you're setting growth back, and that's why we're seeing these growth concerns resurface in U.S. markets. Right? You ask, you know, you ask how it hits here. You ask how it hits here. Two ways, and these are the other consequences of this. So you get the devaluation wave 
that is creates a deflationary spiral because now everything is cheaper and you think oh good stuff is cheaper like oil is cheaper well it's not good certainly not good for markets because you've got again this liquidity drain dollars are coming out there's less money to spend and buy stuff it goes against it strikes at the very heart of what the fed is trying to achieve which is Inflation. I know inflation is this bad word, and too much inflation is a bad thing, just like too high a price of oil is a bad thing. But what's worse than inflation is deflation. That's the killer. That's the killer. Because a deflationary equilibrium, again, to use that big word of the long grace log, it's forever. This is why I think you know you and I and, and, and others, uh, not everyone, but but a, but a lot of uh, a lot of market participants or commentators had had an issue with the Fed raising rates in this global environment because uh, all that uh, you know to me what that's what that's doing is is strength is a it's a dollar strengthening move um, and therefore a relative weakening in their currencies and aren't they aren't they seeing this this same. Yeah, again, it's, it's, it's so bizarre, right? Because it, it goes beyond being tone deaf. You know, we, we, we were having a conversation about being tone deaf. This isn't tone deaf. This is willful blindness saying, okay, we're just going to look at the jobs number and we're going to ignore everything else that's happening in the world. And that makes me think, look, they're not idiots. They, they know what else is going on in the world. And that's why I think it was a willful abdication, an attempt to wash our hands, to distance themselves from owning the market. And uh, that's something that investors are having a hard time coming to grips with because for the last five years, we've been very... Here's the thing about investors. They're very smart and they're very easily trained. Investors are, are they're wonderfully easily trained. And we have been wonderfully trained to now know that, oh, the Fed owns us. And so now when the Fed is saying, uh, we don't want you, that, that's a very hard lesson for markets and investors to accept. And, and, and ultimately, I don't think that the Fed will be able to, quote unquote, get away with it uh, because it's it could be 1938 or 1937, 38 all over again. Because this is, you know, you say, how does it affect us with what's going on in China? It's a wave of devaluations. It's a deflationary spiral which is just bad. And what it finally does is I think it cripples maybe in a systemic permanent way, global trade, right? Cause China has been the marginal buyer of everything, the marginal maker of everything markets happen on the margins. There's another lesson for you. There's another aphorism for you. Markets happen on the margins. And when China does what it does, and it's going to do, because that's what it has to do for just domestic political survival, the rest of the world has to deal with it. And it's going to hit us like a ton of bricks. And it's going to hit Europe like a ton of bricks. Because we're already being hit hard. You know, look at the high-yield market. You know, you're, you're, you're seeing regional banks today trade below tangible book. Why? Because you don't trust the book value. Why? Because they've got all these energy loans. All right, I get that. All right, you put on top of that a credit freeze with banks not trusting each other and worrying about, well, what's your exposure to China? Or what's your exposure to any sort of anything dealing with global trade, anything dealing with the global commodity and industrial complex, anything to do with making stuff? 
Well, you know, good, good, good luck with that. Good luck with putting that on top of where credit markets are already telling you we are in the U.S. Good luck in saying, oh, well, don't worry. We got 290,000, you know, service jobs. It, and then you're going to tighten on top of that. It's just, it's, it's, it, anyway, I get, and I can hear you, you know, you can not, hear my voice, not, I get angry. It's not too early then in your opinion to call this a policy error. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> to get back That's to right. my question. To answer that, that, that initial question, right. What would a policy error look like if not this? Ben, you watch a lot of movies. Which movie does this remind you of right now? What's going on? <laughs> okay, let me think about that a second. Uh, you can't okay. say The Godfather. No, 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 no. I won't use The Godfather. Okay, I got it. I got it. Yeah, I saw this the other day again. Umpteenth time. Iron Man 3. All right, Iron, this reminds me of Iron Man 3. Because All right, spoiler alert, right? If anybody hasn't seen Iron Man 3 and anyone cares. But... Iron Man 3, I remember, you remember the build-up of this movie, it was going to be, oh, the Mandarin, one of these arch villains, one of the arch foes of Iron Man is going to be in Iron Man 3. And I was really looking forward to that. Because, you know, the Mandarin, he's got these magic rings and he does all this stuff. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm I going saw Iron Man 1, oh, which so, I love. Ah, please. So, so, so Iron Man 3, we're all excited. We're going to see the Mandarin, this arch villain. And that's how the movie starts off, where the Mandarin, he's, he basically ends up in the movie, he's basically a terrorist. He's like Osama bin Laden. And then we learn in the course of the movie that he's being played by, by Ben Kingsley, right? Great actor. Love it. It turns out the Mandarin, this great villain, is this Ben Kingsley is just this beaten down old, you know, actor from the UK who the real villain has set up as the, the, the mouthpiece, as the, this, uh, you know, great villain. And um, it's, it was hilarious. I loved it when I saw it. Right, and I was thinking about that today. About you know, just we were talking about earlier about being tone deaf. Right, that that you know the great and powerful Wizard of Oz, and it turns out to be this Ben Kingsley, this this beaten down old actor who's just kind of popping his beers and his pills back there, and is this like kept little puppet. And it was so funny, and it, and, and I was just thinking about that because of the whole thing about tone deafness and you know presenting oneself as one thing and, and actually being something else. But but the other reason it, it resonates with me is that, and I think I can speak for a lot of people who might be listening to this, I actually wanted to see the Mandarin that I knew from the comic books, this powerful villain, uh, this powerful person. And, and when I thought about the movie later, and I know I'm going on and on about this, it actually was a real disappointment to me that the opportunity to have a powerful person and, and a, a, a figure really speaking and, and playing this dramatic role uh, was short-circuited. And um, I've, been, I've been thinking about that recently when I think about the, the people, right? <laughs> they're not beaten down drunk actors, right? But they are, they're just people. They're not these heroic personages, either of villainy or heroism. They're just people. And I, I remember one of the, 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 the best books I've read in six years, right? It's, it's called The Lords of Finance. And it's about the people, the men, and they're all men, right? This is the era of the, the central bankers in the post-war period, uh, the, the interwar period between World War I and World War II. The origins of central banking, right? And what you read about when you read these histories, and that's why I love history and I love biography, and I do want you to report back, 
you know, in two years when you finish the, uh, the Mark Twain autobiography is you realize they're just people. You know, they're, they're, not, they're, they're not these heroes or grand heroes or villains, even though we want them to be so much. And it could be humorous or funny when we talk about the foibles of people, like the foibles of the Mandarin character. But there's this human need for those big personas. And uh, that's the hardest thing I think we have as humans and certainly as investors is to recognize that these aren't voices from above. They're just people. And even fed, fed governors are people. Fed governors and, are people too. And they get tired. <laughs> and, they, and they get tired. And they get tired of having to be on CNBC and talk about oh the weekly uh, you know jobless report. Anyway, Iron Man three. There you go, Ben Kingsley. All right. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about storms in this, and I, I just think it's important for our listening audience to know that. Uh, Jeremy and I have been enjoying one of Jeremy's uh, favorite libations here. It seems appropriate for the conversation. Jeremy, you want to describe what we're uh, consuming here? Uh, you and I have been drinking the, the classic dark and stormy, uh, dark rum, preferably Jamaican, uh, mixed with some ginger beer and a little bit of lime. Wash down the Chinese food. That's a good. It's a great combination. So. Good luck navigating these dark and stormy waters, fellow uh, Epsilon Theory uh, readers and listeners. And thanks for joining us for podcast number one. Cheers. <laughs>